1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, that's 1014. Page 1014. If you're new to the Bible, we're glad you're here. Opening a Bible is going to help you as we look at the passage this morning, and you'll find the, the large number to be the chapter. So when we say chapter 6, that's the large number. And the small numbers are the verses. So when we say verse such and such, you're looking for the small number. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our God, in heaven we ask that you would help us now to receive your word. Lord, what you speak and say is life-giving. And so, God, we pray you'd give us life. Speak to us from your word. And God, we pray that most of all, you would hold out Jesus to us, and he would be greater than all of our temptations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's probably not a thought that's more smothering to individuality in our culture than the thought that you and I belong to someone else, that I'm not my own. I'm not my own person in the sense that I dictate who I am and what I am, and I don't live on an island. I'm not secluded from everybody else, and I I don't have a responsibility to someone else. The Bible tells us that we are not our own, and if you're in Christ, you belong to Jesus, so you You're owned by God twice. But for the Christian, there's not much more life-giving news than that. It's freedom. You're free from yourself. And the pushes and the pulls of inward desires and a culture that says, come this way, no go that way, no wait, let's do something different. That's what 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20 says is really calling us to. We're being called to glorify God with our bodies. Glorify God with your body. That's that's the main thing that God wants us to grab a hold of and walk in from this passage. You'll see that stated at the very end of our passage in verse 20. The positive statement of glorify God with your body. Negatively, it's stated in verse 18 where it says flee sexual immorality. That's probably the big uh, application coming from this in this passage. So let's think about how God calls us to see ourselves as not belonging to ourselves and therefore in the knee, in the position of glorifying God with our bodies. If you take notes, there's three three things we're going to think about with this. The first one is your body matters. Your body matters. This verse is 12 to 14. The second one is sex matters. Sex matters. That's verses 15 to 17. And then finally, identity matters. Identity matters. 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20. Let's look at the text. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul writes, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Like most people before us, our world believes we've stumbled onto new wisdom. Unlike previous generations, we figured it out. If you don't laugh at that, you haven't caught up to the fact that what is claimed as new wisdom is often just repackaged old ideas from generations that came before us, and we've forgotten. Today, our world thinks the real me lies somewhere inside, trapped by this external body. And if I'm going to live a life of meaning and value, I've got to figure out who I am 
and get that person out of this body. The new wisdom is let the real you out. Be you. Do you. But it isn't new, and it isn't wisdom. Way back in Paul's day, in first century Corinth, they thought the same new thing. The problem with both, well, they both have a view of the body that's too low. This so-called wisdom is too low for who we really are, created in God's image. And when your view of the body is too low, you do things with it that degrade the body. That's what they did, and it's what's going on today. It at least goes back to Plato in the 4th century B.C., But knowing human history, it probably predated him as well. We just don't have records of it. So somewhere around 375 BC, 375 or so years before this letter itself was written, 2,000 years before our time, Plato famously called the body a prison house of the soul. And the idea in his statement is a play on words. The Greek word for body is soma. And it sounds like the Greek word for tomb, sema. So you can hear it in his statement, a sema house of the soma. For Plato, the soul was something special. He believed the soul was more real than the body. Does that sound familiar? The immaterial is more pure than the material. That's what they taught. That's what ancient Greece believed. And by the time the church in Corinth came along, that idea had been developed a little further. People started believing that the soul was divine, but the body was actually evil. So not only was the inner person more pure, the outer person was a hindrance to the real person inside. Very modern idea 2,000 years ago. And from what we can see in this letter, the church in Corinth lays in a city that believe somewhere in these two realms of thought, that inside is this divine soul and outside is this evil body and it's trapping me and I've got to get out of it. Isn't it helpful, isn't it encouraging to learn that what we face today is not unlike what previous Christians have faced? The gospel came to first century people that believed the same kinds of things that our culture is grabbing wholesale right now and teaching in every corner. And the Christians who made up this church, as they came to faith in Jesus, they came out of that culture and they brought their ideas with them into the church. And so we get this letter where Paul is having to teach them and correct them and say, say, don't follow follow the the philosophies and the wisdom of this world, but instead embrace the wisdom of God and his world. Now, how do we know that that's what was going on? Well, the Corinthians were apparently pretty libertarian in their view of the body. They believed it was disposable and just merely a tool of the soul. That's why later on, if you're reading through 1 Corinthians, you're going to get to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, Paul takes up the idea of the bodily resurrection of of us, of everyone who's in Christ. And he has to argue with them and convince them in chapter 15, verse 12, and say, you know, if if, if some claim that there's no resurrection of the body. You see, in Corinth, they thought the the body was so unimportant that even in the resurrection, we get rid of it. And so later in this chapter, in this book, Paul has to argue with them and say, no, 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 no. Even in the resurrection, we will have bodies. We were made to have bodies. So the body matters. There will be a resurrection of of the body, only it'll be a new spiritual body. But that doesn't mean there's no correlation. You remember Jesus was raised, and while at times the disciples had trouble recognizing him as he appeared to them, as they, as they interacted with him, he would say to them, feel, feel my hands, touch my side. He asked for food and he ate it, demonstrating that his body was real. He was really there. And in some way, the resurrected Christian will have a body like Jesus's. There will be a resurrection of the body and it will be transformed 
It's not the shedding of the body in the resurrection, but the transformation of it. So this low view of the body in Corinth was leading to a promiscuous view of sex. That's why in chapter 5, we read of this heinous sexual immorality. Look, look in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? In Corinth, they had progressive ideas of sex. And in their own church, they had someone who was pushing the limits even in Gentile society. And they were proud of it. On some level, they viewed themselves as progressive, as, as very liberal-minded, open-minded to exploring new ideas and using the body in whatever way that we might feel. Paul corrects them and he says, you should be grieved about this, not proud about this. Well, in our chapter, here in chapter 6, in verses 12 and 13, we have some actual quotes that they were saying in Corinth. And Paul wants to pick those up and sort of look at them and, and ask and hold them up to, to the resurrection of Jesus. Look again at what he says in verse 12. Two times he uses the same phrase. Everything is permissible for me. Your translation probably has that in quotes. Because it's believed that this is what the Corinthians were using in the church to justify their views of sexuality. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then in verse 13 is another quote. Sort of a reasoning here. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. So if you listen closely, you can hear the Christian truth that the law of Moses has been fulfilled. The covenant obligations of the law are no longer binding and in Christ we're set free. Therefore, why should we limit ourselves? Why shouldn't we say everything is permissible to me? Isn't it permissible? Aren't I free in Christ? Christian liberty, then, was being cited as the grounds for rejecting restrictions on what we do with our bodies. Even arguing from the utilitarian view, a view that Americans love, uh, they, he, they, they take up in verse 13, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. It's a way of saying that what you do with your body is irrelevant. It's just, it's just an exercise. It's just, it's just a physical activity. It's a lot like eating. There's a stomach that requires food. There's cravings that desire it. And so you just grab food and you eat it and you satisfy it. It doesn't matter. But is that true? Should we live asking, what can I do? Or should we live with a higher ethic? Paul argues for a higher ethic. Notice Paul's reply to each of these. He asks, well, what is beneficial? And I will not be dominated by anything. The freedom that they're citing in Christ to validate a progressive idea of sexuality should actually be the freedom in Christ to advocate for limiting their sexuality into God's design. Freedom not for sexual immorality, but freedom from sexual immorality. The Corinthians were citing freedom for sin, but Paul reminds us that in Christ, you and I have freedom from it. In verse 13, the analogy of stomach and food is a stand-in for their real belief that the body is for sex, and sex is just for the body. So according to their logic, sex is just a physical act. In fact, they seem to believe that the body is meant for this. Look at it again. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food. The second half of that phrase, no one's quite sure if, if Paul is continuing to quote them when he says, and God will do away with both of them, or if Paul is challenging it. If he's challenging it, he's taking their own phrase and he's agreeing with them, yes, indeed, God will do away with both of them. But you'll notice he says, however, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
Our culture is not far off from the Corinthian culture. Perhaps we'd say today, identity is for the body and the body for identity. Most of us today, or at least our cultural expression of this idea, is that the body is a canvas. And I use the canvas to express my inner self so that I, am, I gratify what's inside and give into it to become something. So people tell their truth by sexual expression and through body manipulation. But what's your body for anyway? What is the body for? Why did God make us with bodies? Well, there's lots of reasons for that. But our text here says that the body is for the Lord. God made us with a body for himself. He gave us a body so that we would use it and employ it in what he has designed it for. Or better yet, our bodies are meant for someone. The body isn't merely for sexual expression or identity. It's for something higher. It's for the worship of God. Last week, we looked at Genesis 2 and those, that foundational passage of the Bible where man is created out of the dust and formed and fashioned. And we read there and we thought about how God has made us male and female, and that is expressed through our bodies. The creation of two genders, each expressing both individually and together the image of God. Our bodies were made from the dust because we were made for the earth. And so, as you remember, we, we thought about this idea of the, out of the earth, God made the earthling. We were made carefully, with design, with Jesus in mind. Since our bodies matter, Jesus took on a body himself. That's what verse 13 is getting at when it says, However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Look at verse 14. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What does he mean when he says that the Lord is for the body? Well, it's not entirely clear. It might mean that it might be speaking to his incarnation, that our bodies were created in the plan of redemption, looking forward to the time when Jesus, the God-man, would take on a body and come in human flesh and live among us and walk among us and show us what it is to be the true Adam. And as a result of that redemption that's in him, that we are conformed into his likeness and we pattern ourselves after him. I think that's here. But you'll notice that verse 14 focuses on the resurrection of the Lord. So it seems to indicate maybe the emphasis being on the Lord for the body is that the Lord resurrected the body. The body that Jesus took was put to death, and that same body was raised up. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's answer to the question of whether or not the body matters. So as you and I think about ourselves, what, what should I do with my body? How should I think about myself? You should first and foremost think about the resurrection of Jesus. You should remember that Jesus lived in a body. He sacrificed that body all the way to death, but then that he came back and raised that body to life in a form that you and I will share when we see him. That's where our minds should go when we're asking questions about how to use and how to think about our bodies. Redemption isn't merely the saving of our souls, but it's the restoration of the whole person. Even so, it's the transformation of each person, body and soul. That's why as you continue to grow in Christ and you come across other passages, you'll read things like this in Romans 6.13, where Paul tells us to present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We have arms and legs and nose and eyes and ears and mouth. We have a whole body that is meant as instruments to be used in the service of God. You know what we're talking about when we say that? We're talking about worship. You remember, remember back last week when we thought about Genesis 2? And where did God make Adam? And where did he place Eve when he made them? He placed them in the garden 
the temple where God dwells so that as image bearers, they would live with God, they would worship God, and in their work with their hands, they would work and cultivate and toil, and they would use their bodies to fulfill the commands of God, to have dominion, to exercise kind, benevolent, good authority over the earth, and to multiply and have children and fill the earth with more image bearers. The instruments of our bodies were created in the service of God. It's not a lower view of the body that's going to help us. We need a higher view of the body that understands it's an instrument of worship. You are walking around with sacred architecture. Sacred architecture. To be placed and used as the instrument of God in his temple. That's a powerful, powerful image. So the body matters. And it matters a lot. And that's why we shouldn't think in terms of everything is permissible. And we shouldn't say, well, you know, food's for the stomach, stomach's for the food. What's it matter? No, instead, the body is for the Lord. But also, we should think about the fact that sex matters. Sex matters. Look at verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are, are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. There's a lot to think about here. If the Corinthians' view of the body was too low, what do you think their view of sex will be? Also too low. If you have a low view of the body, you're going to have a low view of sex. Now, that doesn't mean that you might not prioritize it, but it does mean that the way you're going to think about practicing it is going to be low rather than high. So far, Paul has said that the body is not unimportant, but it matters. And to prove it, Jesus took on a body and redeemed our bodies, and he was resurrected bodily, as we will be too. And someone might say, yeah, well, what about sex? And that's an important part of our bodies, isn't it? And the answer is yes, it is. And that's why, in verse 18, he's going to say plainly to us, flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Well, what is sexual immorality? Here's a, here's a working definition. Sexual immorality is any sexual expression contrary to God's design. Sexual immorality is any sexual expression contrary to God's design. And you can see this reflected in the way Paul begins his rebuke in chapter 5. It's all through this passage and it's all around it, surrounding it. You see both God's design and you see examples of the way that we, that we change God's design to do other things. So in chapter 5, verse 1, you, you, you may have missed it, but it's actually verse 2. I'm sorry, it is verse 1. Uh, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And then notice this phrase, and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. So sexual immorality is a broad category with lots of kinds, lots of expressions of this kind of sin. Sexual immorality is, is a category that looks for sexual expression outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage. And we see that from the beginning of the Bible, and you see it all the way through, including in this passage. Why should they flee? I'm sorry, look at verse 9. Paul says there, right before our verses, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will enter the kingdom or will, in, will inherit God's kingdom. Why should they flee? That's what these verses are about. And there's at least three reasons here. So if you take notes, you can, you can follow with these points. The first reason he gives us is that the Christian is joined to Jesus. The Christian is joined to Jesus. You remember this is a letter written to the church? 
These are people who are wanting to follow Jesus. They've, been, they've heard about the good news of God's redemption and the cross and the resurrection. And they've said, I, I want to come out of the world and I want to follow Jesus. The second reason he gives is that sex is part of the creation designed to bear God's image as male and female. He appeals to the creation design that we looked at last week. I'll say these again when we get there. And number three, sexual sin is against the body. Sexual immorality is actually sin against our bodies. So we'll think about that in just a minute. The first, the first answer he gives to the question of why is that the Christian is joined to Jesus in verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Verse 15 reminds us that our bodies are members of Christ. So what Paul's doing here is he's taking the image of the, of the body of the church and he's extending it out into our individual selves. And he's saying that we as individuals, if you're you a member of Christ, if you belong to the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And as a, as a redeemed child of God, your body belongs to him and has become a part of Jesus. And so spiritually, your bodies are, are operating under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And they are members of Jesus's body, just like your own hand is a member of your body. In verse 19, he elaborates on this by appealing to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit for the Christian. You see what he says there when he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? A Christian should flee sexual immorality because we belong to the body of Jesus. And because we belong to Jesus, it's unthinkable that we would join ourselves to a prostitute. Now, I was saying before that he, he, he pulls from everything. There was a, an example of a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, in, in, uh, or not his mother-in-law, his, his, his stepmother in chapter 5. The verses before this speak of the broad category of sexual immorality, but it also speaks of adulterers in marriage. And it speaks of homosexuality. And then later he's going to talk more about other ways in which sexual sin is, is rampant in culture. And he's going to encourage us not to engage in any of it. So, so the example of a prostitute here is, is an example of perhaps the most casual encounter. One where money is exchanged and everybody's willing and happy to do so. He says, is it possible that the Christian would engage in this? In casual sexual immorality? Where does he get the idea from? Where does he get the idea that we shouldn't do this? That, we, that, that, in joining, that because we're joined to Christ, how does this join us to a prostitute? Well, he gets it from Genesis 2.24 that we saw last week. But the other half of the verse that he quotes there in verse 16, when he says, Do you not, Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. But the other half of that verse that he quotes here in Genesis 2.24 says a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the word joining there, as it means every time you see it in the Bible here, uh, when, when this verse is quoted, it means to be glued together. It's the same word he uses in verse 16 here to be joined to a prostitute and in verse 17 to be joined to Jesus in the spirit. So follow that. In, in Genesis 2.24, the, 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 the uh, formative text for, for marriage and life and gender and sexuality ends with, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the word there is that they will be joined and the two will become one flesh through marriage. And that word glued is being carried through. And here, Paul says that as you and I engage in sexual immorality, we join ourselves, we glue ourselves to another person in a similar way. But then the thing that is most alarming is in verse 17. Look at what he says. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. If you're in Christ, you've already been glued to Jesus by the Spirit, when we repent and believe. And so the thought is unthinkable. It's akin to taking Jesus, 
uh, into a, 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 a brothel with you. Or akin to going into the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant and laying with a prostitute there in the Holy of Holies. That's what he's saying. Certainly he's not saying that when you sleep with a prostitute, you marry the person. But it, Genesis 2.24 is saying much more than that. That in marriage, we, we become one. But it does mean that the marital act of becoming one physical body happens in sexual immorality. But for the Christian, we're already joined to Jesus. So for us to engage in sexual immorality of any kind is to join Jesus to that sexual immorality. Let it never be. That's why one author put it this way. Sexual immorality is wrong because every sex act is supposed to be a uniting act. This is where the scriptures here point us to something more broad than just Christian sexual ethics. The Christian sexual ethic is grounded in the creation of male-female image-bearing, and it's designed for sexual complementarity in marriage. The second reason he gives here in verse 16 is that sex is part of the creation design to bear God's image as male and female. He says, don't you know that he who is joined becomes one body with her? Now, when Paul quotes half of this verse, he means to refer to the whole narrative. That's the way that works. He's not just isolating one phrase from one verse to make a point. He's pulling that point out in its broader context. So when he does that, he's highlighting something, but he's bringing all of that context to bear on the thing that he's highlighting. And that's what he's doing here. He specifically says, he highlights the two-ness becoming one. And the math shouldn't be lost on us. The two literally become one in the act. And this is by design. Paul's point has to do with the literal joining of two bodies into one. So, Genesis 2, 24 again says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This refers to much more than merely having sex. Sex is designed to serve a larger function of humanity than just physical pleasure. It's designed to join together the two halves of the image of God. And it's always procreative in type because that's the design of God and the mandate that comes with it. Remember what we learned last week. We learned that when Adam fell asleep, God took from his side, not merely his rib, but from his side, which indicates that Eve is the other side of Adam. Robert Gagnon calls this a two-faceted sexual whole. Eve is called a counterpart, not merely a helper. She's his counterpart, which means he, she corresponds to him. And this indicates both human similarity and difference. It's the proper order for sex that's anatomically visible. Or as Robert Gagnon went on to say, you don't need Genesis 1 and 2 to see it, but you might need years of education to reject it. The stress is on compatibility in the Genesis 2 narrative. God made only two people, one a male and one a female, with anatomical compatibility. The whole narrative of the creation of man and woman emphasizes one flesh being made into two and brought back together in marriage to make one again. So think about this. I'm going to say this. This is a quote, but slowly. One flesh does not mean merely of the same family. It means a restoration of the sexual whole. So in effect, the image of one flesh becoming two sexes in creation grounds the principle of two sexes becoming one flesh in sex. Marriage, then, is a reconstitution of the divided parts, not merely a union, but a reunion. That's why married couples, you should get together often. It's for your good. It's for your marriage. It is meant to renew your covenant together. It's meant to bring you back together. And all of the work that goes into communication and, and, and seeing one another and valuing one another and speaking to one another brings the, the, the marriage back to where it should be because we drift. We drift apart just, just through life, just through days gone by, just through the effects of life. 
Sometimes we communicate poorly. Sometimes we fail to communicate. Sometimes we fail to encourage one another. But as you do the work to come together again, your marriage is renewed and revived. All this is foundational to what Paul is arguing. The normative standard for humanity is that the embodied man and woman is meant for heterosexual marriage where sex is right, good, and expressive of the creative design that is procreative in type. And it is good. When we follow God's design, there's little risk of STDs, unwanted pregnancies that lead to the demand for divorce or the demand for um, abortion or divorce from adultery and the pain that it, that it causes or the emotional pain of regret and sexual exploitation and on and on and on. And there's also the positive impacts of marital renewal and the safety of the marriage bed, the emotional and physical safety, the pleasure without guilt, the welcoming environment for children to be born in and the safe, productive environment for them to be raised in. When we do it God's way, it works. When we do it our way, we hurt each other. When we sin sexually, we don't just violate God's design, we sin against our own humanity. And that's the third reason he gives in this section, that sexual sin is against the body. Look at verse 18 again. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Certainly there are lots of ways to sin that entangle the body. Gluttony and drunkenness are examples of this. Those are ways that we sin, and it affects our bodies. So it's curious that he makes this distinction here. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Some speculate that this is also something that the Corinthians were arguing. Listen, sin is just outside. It's just something you do. And sure, it it, it might be sin, but, but the body remains pure. The self is protected and guarded against sin. Either way, Paul picks it up and he wants to draw out the implications of that. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who sexually immoral sins against his body. This verse is highlighting the special nature of sexual sin because of the uniqueness of it joining one person to another. There's no other sin like that. And in light of the fact that we are joined spiritually to Jesus, the unique nature of sex becomes even more sacred for the Christian. What does it mean for it to be against the body? Well, in light of what we just saw underlying the nature of sex tied to our creation as gendered image bearers, created to have a body, both body and soul, in our humanity, the reduction of sex to a tool of the body is at best the degrading of a sacred act. In Romans 1, for example, when talking about homosexual sin, Paul describes it as the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, similar to the language that's here. And the descriptions that follow uh, in, in that verse describe it as exchanging natural relations for what is contrary to nature. Certainly, sexual immorality is against the body in this way. It's a degrading of our physical bodies that is made to image God. But why is that so significant? Well, it's because of what God has designed to happen in sex. It's the interpersonal giving of yourself to another person. It's the natural end of all the communication that goes on where people get to know one another and fall in love. It's the very reason we encourage people who are dating and during that time, and as they come and they say, they say, how should we date well? And we say, look, get to know one another, but spend time with other people. Try to avoid early on being alone and, and, and having uh, romantic dates that are high on emotion, but low on just content and getting to know one another casually. Because the more that emotional connection happens, the natural desire to express that grows. So temptation comes with it. 
the emotions that come in, in, in getting to know someone and giving yourself in that way is designed by God to happen naturally and to, and to want to express itself physically. That's what's supposed to happen. <laughs> That's why, so in dating, we have to take that serious. And then in marriage, you have to work at that. Right? Because that's the way it works. In this sense, our culture is correct in saying that there's nothing like it. Part of the obsession of our society with sexual freedom is the desire to know and to be known in the most intimate ways. What is it that we're all looking for? We're looking to be known. I want to be seen. And I want you to acknowledge me. And I want to do that back to you. That's the longing of the human heart. What Paul says here is really profound. He's describing sex as a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment that expresses the whole personality to another person. Another author wrote, No other sin engages one's power of bodily personal communication in precisely so intimate a way. That's amazing when you think about it. Tim Keller writes in his book on marriage, one of my favorite books on marriage, the Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has such a lofty one. If sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person. Even when used wrongly, Unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally physically joined. And in the midst of sexual passion, people naturally want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Where does that come from? It comes from the design that God has built into its purpose. Christian, this is why God's answer to sexual temptation is not just abstinence. It is that. But chapter 7 is going to lay out a call to marry. So that if you struggle with with sexual desire, you should get married. You should pursue that. You should put work into that and find a husband or a wife that you can marry and join. It's also why married couples have the call to be to come together often. And it's, a, it's why we're called to discipline our desires in every area of life so that we grow in the ability to resist temptation and give in to God's desires, God's commands. That's why God glorying, glorifying chastity and singleness is held out as good and commendable. That is when you worship God with your body, when you say no to your desires that are contrary to God's commands. So if you're single and you're not married, that's, that's a great reason to support marriages, to volunteer to, to, uh, to babysit so that couples with younger children can go on dates. Why you want to encourage and ask, ask uh, if, you're, if you're a guy and you're meeting up with another guy, ask him how his marriage is going. Ladies, the same thing. How's your marriage going? How are you loving your husband? Men, how are you loving your wives? Children, you should desire as you grow up to to, to, and you grow up into manhood and you grow up into womanhood to, to pursue marriage, unless you have the gift of singleness, you should think of yourself as one day going to be married. And, and that marriage having children. And that's a good thing. So you want to grow up in a way that prepares you for that. You want to train yourself to, to do what's right, to be disciplined. And when adults are encouraging you to do things that are hard, do those hard things because there's going to be hard things that you're going to have to do when you get married. And you want to have a good marriage with your husband or your wife. Now, all of this comes together in the last thing here, when when Paul tells us that our identity does, in fact, matter. What's the motivation for following God's design for sexual ethics? Well, it's the answer to the question, whose body is it? Look at verse 19. Let's think about identity mattering. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. The question underneath it all is this, whose body is it? 
Is it my body for me? Or is it the Lord's body for him? Whose is it? Our culture answers that. People without Jesus answer that very plainly and they say it's for me. It's my body. I'll do what I want. But if you belong to Christ, we don't say that. You just can't say that. We've been redeemed for another world. We don't belong to this world. We were created and owned by God at creation. And then we were redeemed out of our sin and the marring of our bodies and our minds and our desires. And he's brought us into the kingdom of his son. So we belong to Jesus. The good news for us all is that the body was always for the Lord. Friend, you were made in the image of God with a purpose for your whole self defined by God. Sin often defines us. It certainly takes over our lives when we give ourselves into it. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're reading these, these, this passage and you can't help but think about your past sins. Listen, if you're in Christ, you don't need to think about your past sins that you've repented of. You need to think about what Jesus has done about those sins. Jesus has died for all of your past sins. He's also died for all of your future sins. Which is why if you're sitting in sin right now, you need to repent from it. You need to flee from it. You need to look at verse 18 and say, yes, Lord, I'm going to do that by your grace. And ask him to forgive you, to heal you, and to restore you. And if you're living in that, I, I encourage you to confess that to someone else. Confess that to another Christian. There is power in bringing the darkness of sin into the light and not hiding it. Don't hide it. When you bring it into the light, you agree with God in public about your sin and you find forgiveness and you find healing. And Christian, we are made to walk in that, not in the guilt and the shame of our past. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you hear this and you say, well, I have trouble embracing all of this. Listen, the key to, 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 to overcoming that is to see yourself as belonging to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, then it doesn't matter what you feel or what you think or what our culture says. It only matters what Jesus says. And in Matthew 19, we read it last week in our, in our, in our scripture reading, Jesus fully affirms the creation mandate. Some people say that Jesus never talks about uh, uh, sexual immorality, that he doesn't talk about homosexuality or bisexuality or anything like that, but he does. In, in, in Matthew 19, he rebukes his hearers who are asking about no-fault divorce and saying, well, can we just, can we just do what we want? Because, you know, Moses allowed it. And he said, haven't you read in the beginning he made them male and female? And then he quotes Genesis 2.24 that shows up here in this verse again. Jesus affirms all of this. And so if you, if you want to leave sexual immorality and you want to live in the power of Jesus and you want to experience the goodness of his creation, then you have to come underneath his authority. And that looks like repentance, turning away from sin, turning away from your ideas and our innate desires and impulses and just giving them to him. In the paragraph before ours, Paul lists categories of sinners that we read earlier. But then in verse 11, he says something really profound. Look at verse 11. He says, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. If you are in Jesus, your sin does not define you. Whatever you've come up with your, with your identity, that's not the definition of you. That might be your old definition. That might be who you used to be outside of Jesus. But in Jesus, you're washed. In Jesus, you're sanctified. In Jesus, you are justified. In Jesus, look at this, verse 19. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how worship comes all the way through from the garden where Adam was created to dwell with God initially all the way to now God implants the spirit inside of our bodies so that this body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's my identity. If you belong to Jesus, that's your identity too. Such were some of you. We were those things. That was our identity, but not anymore. Not anymore. He writes, you were washed and you were sanctified. 
Do you see that, church? Sin has the tendency to identify you. But if you belong to Jesus, you can't believe that. The body always belonged to the Lord. And when he came to get you, he came for your body too. And he's going to redeem it all the way to the new creation. He won't stop until it's fulfilled. That's why all of these things are sin. For the Christian, we were bought with a price. The Christian could never say, my body, my choice. It's his body, his choice. We have to say that about everything in life. What's so amazing is that Jesus didn't come as a ghost saying, escape it. I'll show you the way out. No, Jesus had a body. He incarnated into flesh as we are. And in his body of flesh, he experienced all the same temptations we do, yet without sin, which makes him a sympathetic high priest when you are struggling with, with sexual temptation, to go to him and say, Jesus, I know that you were tempted, but you didn't sin. Jesus, I'm tempted. Help me. Forgive me and help me. And he's sympathetic. He understands the temptation that you experience. He suffered in his body to purchase us, whole person. And yet, the body will be redeemed. The son bought us by giving up his own body on a tree. And this affirms the value of the whole person. Of your person. The spirit was then given by the father to indwell the believer in the body. So the body is not a meaningless pile of desire to be indulged or just to endure and then toss it aside at death. No, it's also not a canvas to manipulate for self-expression. The body isn't mine. It isn't yours. It's the Lord's. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great truth. We pray that the compelling vision of belonging to you would be of greater worth in our hearts than any compelling desires we have to gratify the flesh. Lord, we want to offer our members as instruments of righteousness. So we ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.